shared in this podcast are the opinions and views of the host and the host alone. They are not a reflection of his employer or any other organization that the host is a member of. The host does not speak for anyone, only himself. This is the I Am Pith Podcast. Get ready for contact. What up, everybody? This is your boy Dex with the I Am Pits podcast coming to you live. No, I'm not live. Not really. I'm joking. But coming to you with a, another video interview. And I know what y'all saying. Y'all seeing that beautiful dark chocolate face in the month of February, Black History Month. Yes, go ahead. Wish me a happy Black History Month. You know what? I really don't care. If you, I really don't care. Don't make a bit of a difference to me. <laughs> but man, thank you all for tuning in. I'm excited about this interview today. Today with me, I'm going to have author of No Shit, Here I Am, Gerard Taylor. Super excited. But before we get him in on the podcast, y'all know what I got to do. I got to hit you with the sponsor, Gunfighter Trading Company. You all know I, they're, they are the first official sponsor of the I Am Pits podcast. And like I said, I am still singing their praises on all their products. This here is the SWAT candle. Man, let me tell you, this thing smells freaking amazing. I am loving all these candles. And the thing is, my wife even loves them. She says it smells like army. It smells like military. It smells like a police car. It smells like a police officer. So, man, do yourselves a favor. Go over to Gunfighting Trading Company. Purchase you some merch. Get you some of this, these wonderful candles. They got the beard bombs, man. These guys are blowing up and doing big things. And the I Am Pits podcast is proud to be a part of what they've got going on. And I fully support these guys. So they're three cops from Erie, PA. So do your thing, go over there, man. And, and don't forget to put in the discount code PITS, P-I-T-T-S. Put in the code PITS and get you a little bit off and save some money in this recession we got going on. But with that said, we're going to get ready to bring the man, the myth, and the legend onto the show. Gerard, what up, my man? Climb the glory, my brother. Yep, right of the line. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, welcome on board, man. Beautiful Sunday here in Kentucky. Man, I just want to go ahead before we get started to say thank you for gifting us with your presence and your time because I know you're a busy man with a family and a career, and I am just happy to have you come on board the show. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, of course, you know. So, man, it was a couple months ago, y'all, where I don't remember what I was doing, but I was just scrolling. And me personally, I'm always looking for a good book, especially military. Man, I love military books. I mean, I just got through with Eugene Sledge's with the old breed at uh, Peleliu in Okinawa, phenomenal read. So, man, for any time I could find a good book, especially from the war that I fought in, the war on terror, those in Iraq, and I'm just scrolling through Amazon and I see this book and it says, "No shit, here I am." And I'm like, "Huh?" And I see a guy wearing the old Army DCUs. I'm like, "Hold up, man, this is from my era." And then I start reading through stuff and like reading uh the bio, and I'm like, "Hold up, this guy is in Kentucky in Shelbyville." And then I'm like, "Oh, he was 10th Mountain Division." I was like, man, this is my brother right here. And then the next thing you know, I just started stalking you. I ain't going to lie, man. I started stalking you real hard. Facebook creeping, Instagram creeping. Like, where can I find this guy at and send him a message? Because the one thing I like to do as a published author myself is I like to get in contact with other published authors and, you know, do like do a signed book exchange. And I'll give you one of my books signed. You give me one of yours. So I get in contact with the man and he works here in Louisville. And so I was like, hey, man, is there any way we can meet up and like do a signed book exchange? So we meet up and do the signed book exchange. And I'm not going to lie. I'm not done reading the book. I'm real slow at reading, brother. Almost there. 
I'm like, I got like maybe 50 more pages to go, but my God, what a phenomenal read thus far, man. I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah. So, man. So before we get started and get a little deeper, man, go ahead and just introduce yourself to the people and just tell us a little bit about you. All right. Well, I'm Jared Taylor. Uh, I'm originally from Illinois, spent about 10 years in the Army as an infantryman. I was with 10th Mountain Division at Fort Drum, New York, and 25th Infantry Division at Schofield Barracks. I uh, did four different tours in the War on Terror before I got out. Went back to school in Illinois, um, got a degree in history and started teaching, and then moved to Kentucky about uh, 2016, started teaching here, and now I'm sort of teaching, sort of a school administrator. I'm kind of in between, but uh, but that's about it. Man. So you were brand new to Kentucky then. Okay. I thought you'd been here. Well, you've been here a little while, but a little bit. Yeah. So you're not native to Kentucky. So tell the people where you're from originally. I'm originally from Mattoon, Illinois, about uh, three hours south of Chicago, uh, close to Champaign, if you're familiar with where University of Illinois is at. That's right. That's right. Well, we're glad to have you in the bluegrass state, my man. Anytime I got you know, anybody that's when the that was in the 10th Mountain Division is always welcome in the bluegrass state. <laughs> we like it here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're glad to have y'all here, yo. So, man, you wrote a book, and that is an accomplishment that not a lot of people can say. Now, there, I tell people there are a lot of books in the world, but for you to have your book in the world, what does that feel like? You know, it's a pretty awesome feeling. I stared at the journals that I had from Iraq for uh, 10 years, just you know, thinking about how I would like to publish a book. And I had published some of the stories that I'd written in those journals. Um, and I used to tell people, they'd be like, why are you carrying around that stupid notebooks aren't? And I'm like, I'm gonna put you on a book someday. Um, you know, and I finally did. And it sort of happened by chance. I was at a, a veterans function and happened to meet a publisher um, who had published some books related to Solder City. And we were talking about journals and stuff. And I showed him mine and he was like, dude, we could have this done in a year. Man. That was, that was pretty much how it all came together. So it's been, it's been pretty cool. Man, that's simple, man. That's simple. That's, that's awesome, dude. You know, and so, so some people writing a book, like it took, it took me almost seven years, man, but you did yours and how long? Um, honestly, I had the stories in my journal and I had started typing them. I mean, like you years ago and just been sitting there. didn't really know what to do with them, how to, how to go about publishing or anything until I met this guy. And then really I started putting everything together and kind of sending it to him. And I would say it still took a couple of years because, you know, I got to the end and I was like, all right, I'm ready to wrap this thing up. And I like, I had the words, but I could not put them in the right order. <laughs> I swear for the end, you know, I struggled and struggled <laughs> and I just walked away for a few months and then finally got back to it. I sat down and finished up the last part one day and I sent it to him. And then we started the proofreading and the editing and, you know, and that was back and forth and back and forth. And it just seemed like it was taking forever. Um, but it actually, you know, it really, the, the book was released sort of by accident because the, the guy who did the editing for me sent it to another veteran author and was like, Hey man, take a picture with this and, and talk about it, you know? Um, so he took a picture of my author's proof and was like, Hey, y'all should buy this book. It's available. And I was like, we're not available yet, but <laughs> <laughs> get that uh, pre-order in <laughs> i was like i guess it's out <laughs> <laughs> well that's awesome yo so the name of the book is no shit here i am you know that's when i saw it i was like yo, this you need a book title that's gonna grab people and that definitely grabbed me 
So can you explain to us how you came up with the name of the book? Yeah, you know, all these war stories, you know, guys sitting around waiting to go on patrol or whatever, always talking about no shit. There I was, you know, <laughs> and whatever story or hijinks that follow. And I would. I came up with that one day. I was just sitting there thinking about like, what can I make for a title? And, and that popped into my head. And I was just like, you know, I wanted my book to be about all the things I've experienced and all the, all the challenges of serving, but also coming home. And, you know, I wanted the book to be about like being able to move on and be successful after the military and all the stuff you deal with from that. Um, so it just kind of like I landed on no shit here I am. And I, I kept trying to think of other stuff because I knew that that would be off putting for some people. But I was just <laughs> like, that's got to be it. It can't be anything else. It's just like it's, a, it's I'm here now. So, well, you know, it, it hits right with your target audience, brother. Let me tell you, <laughs> it definitely hits right with with everybody that's interested in military books, because we all know the stories. Like you said, no shit. There I am. Knee deep in hand grenade pins. I just killed twelve right, Taliban right. with with the you no know, broken end of a, a plastic fork. Right, <laughs> you know? right. We know how all those stories go, man. But you know, it's so funny. I was uh, at a working off duty the other night at a council meeting for a small city, and I was like, man, this is gonna be boring. It's like I'm gonna take my book in there with me. You know, so I'm sitting in there reading, and the mayor for the small town comes by. He's like, "What you reading there, officer?" I just hold it up. She's like, "Oh my." <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, it's a good read, man. <laughs> now, the picture on the front of your book, can you tell us a little de detail about the picture that you chose on there and how you chose it? Yeah, so that was actually from my first deployment. Um, we were in Uzbekistan. That was probably, I don't know, January or February of 2002 um, at Karshi Air Base. So my company, not even my whole battalion, my company <laughs> deployed right after 9-11 to Aberdeen Proving Grounds for additional force protection in Maryland along the Chesapeake Bay. And then we came back in November, did a little bit of training. And then right before we were supposed to leave for Christmas block leave, we got deployed December 19th, 2001. They sent us to Uzbekistan. We got there, we were doing force protection. And um, I, I read in your book talking about escorting shit trucks, right? So we were doing that. Um, <laughs> oh, God, um, horrible duty. <laughs> right. And when Operation Anaconda kicked off and the you know Neil Roberts fell out of the Chinook, that was when our company was pulled down to Afghanistan to Bagram and then out into the Shycott Valley the very next day. Man, so let me ask you, so when you joined the Army, what year did you join? Because you're slightly older than me, not much. 2000? Yeah. So did you ever imagine as a young infantry soldier in the 10th Mountain Division that you would get that call? No, I figured we'd go to Bosnia and Kosovo and Sinai and all those places that everybody was going to at the time. Um, and they told us when we got there, welcome to 10th Mountain, the most deployed unit in the Army. You know, and I was like, oh, we're going to go to all these six month peacekeeping rotations. Um, <laughs> I remember telling my mom and, and even my girlfriend at the time, I'm like, it's four years. My college will be paid for like ain't nothing going to happen, you know, and. We got that call. I was supposed to be getting married that block leave. <laughs> um, you know, and yeah, like we ended up over there. And of course, it was so early in the war. Everybody was like, holy cow, like you're over there. You you know, you're doing this stuff. And, um, yeah, I, you know, and thinking back, like when I first joined the Army, the only guys you saw with a combat infantryman's badge and a combat patch had been in Panama or Desert Storm. Right. So, and they were the old guys, right? They were like the Sergeant Major, First Sergeant, stuff like that. So it was really crazy coming back 
in spring of 2002 with a, a CIB and having these old guys who hadn't been anywhere watch me in the PX. Like, who is this specialist with a, <laughs> the CIB in a combat patch? You know, you think you special? You ain't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know how that goes. Yeah. Hey, so let me ask: Did you, when you signed up for the army, did you get to choose the 10th Mountain Division, or were you volunteered to go to go there I, and serve? I didn't. So I actually had an Airborne Ranger contract. Um, so I graduated basic training, you know, the, the one station unit training there in, at Fort Benning on Sand Hill, same as you, um, went straight to airborne school, did that. And then my next stop was rip with 75th Ranger regiment to start that training. Um, and I'm not going to lie. I quit like, you know, they, and they, they told me, they're like, well, you'll, you'll never amount to anything. You've shamed your last name and all that. But I, uh, I was just. I wasn't sure I wanted to do it and got about halfway through and decided I was done. So I then basically was sent needs of the army. And the day that I got my orders to Fort drum, everybody else who got orders that day got sent to Korea. <laughs> but see, man, that's the one thing I like and respect about your book. You know, is that like me, you know, I want to be a ranger, but I didn't take the step to do it because I decided to go get married. You, know, you at least tell the story like, yeah, I was in ranger school and I quit. And you know what? That's all good, man. But you have a lot of guys out here that go in the military and they just, you know, overbloviate themselves and just put up this big tough guy persona. And they're, you know, they're the greatest soldier ever. And you were just like, you know, I got in there and things started creeping in my mind and I just quit and I didn't want to do it. And man, but there's nothing wrong with that because there's a lot more people that have not been Rangers than are people that have been Rangers. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> you know, so yeah, that, I mean, at least you attempted those, it. Yeah. I mean, all those special ops guys and even the guys that go to ranger school and i still i always wanted to go to ranger school even after i got to fort drum i wanted to go and get my tab right you know but, but we started deploying so much and i'm like why am i going to volunteer more time away from home to go get a tab that like honestly i'm getting promoted pretty quick i don't need it you know and maybe that's the wrong attitude but i mean it, it would have been an accomplishment for sure and I <laughs> those guys that have it but i was just like i don't i don't need to do that you know, so I know. So we, you were. What, what you? When did you get to uh, Fort Drum? Uh, I got to Fort Drum in September of two thousand, and I left in December of two thousand three. Okay, so yeah, so you got there early, man. Before everything started, man. Yep. So I tell people, people say that slavery in America has been abolished for years, and I'm like, you've clearly never been a private in the infantry, <laughs> man. So what was it like for you as a brand new private in the Tenth Mountain Division? It was a four three one, correct? Yep. Yeah. How that, man, tell the people about that experience. <laughs> you know, like I showed up and my guys had just gotten back from Bosnia. Um, so here's all these soldiers who have spent time overseas and they've, they're all tight knit group and they're experienced and they know what they're doing. So I was trying to be like a sponge. You know, I was fortunate. I showed up on the same day as another private who could not like, he was like private pile from full metal jacket. He couldn't do anything <laughs> right. So the spotlight was on him and I just kept my head down. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I mean, being know. at Fort drum, it was, you know, like wearing those snowshoes to go do ruck marches and being out. Oh, the Mickey there. mouse boots. Yeah. And it's oh. you know, far below zero and you're miserable. And I mean, you know, they're making you sleep across the street in the open field from your barracks where you can see your room window, but we're doing cold weather training. I'm, you know, like, man. And of course, the, you know, every time it snows, it doesn't matter what time, what day, they're going to come through the barracks, pounding on doors, looking for somebody to go out and shovel. Oh, yeah. 
I remember like as soon as you got off work, you crack a beer so that you could be like, man, I've been drinking so and I can't work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man. God, you know, I, you know, it's parts of you miss it. Yo, but at the same time, parts of me like, man, thank God those days are over because I was miserable yeah. as a private. You know, you know, I was. <laughs> yeah. And like so I, I graduated like the, the distinguished honor graduate in my basic training cycle. So I showed up to Fort Drum and I had an Army Achievement Medal and I had my airborne wings. And I was 20, so like they treated me a little bit differently than the average 18-year-old kid that was fresh out of basic because they're like, oh, you've you've done some stuff, you've got a, you know, you've got a, you've got your wings and you've got a, a, an award and like you're just a little bit older. So like I got along better with my sergeants than I did a lot of the younger guys that were just showing up, but it still sucked. <laughs> oh yeah. Oh definitely, man. Being a private is God bless, man. I don't even know how to describe it, man. It's it's rough, man. <laughs> it's rough, dude. <laughs> well, so, yeah, I, I look back on the ar army like really fondly. Like it was a great time in my life. I was, you know, I was a bad dude, right? I was carrying a machine gun and blowing stuff up and running around in gunfights and all that. But God, it was miserable at the same time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and you, you look back and you forget about the misery sometimes and just think, man, it was cool. You know, I, I often think back and I'm like, yo, how in the hell did I do everything that I did? Because you, just like me, you were the assistant gunner. And that's one thing we we both talk about in our book show is being the AG. For you all that don't know that are civilians that are not familiar with an AG, you're the assistant machine gunner. So the machine gunner carries a 240 Bravo and the assistant gunner carries the tripod and all the ammo and whatever the hell else they can think of to Fair stack barrel, up on you. Man. Spare barrel, yeah. Then what is it? Every hundred pounds of seven six two ammo weighs what ten? What is it? Seven? I can't remember. Uh, yeah, it's been a long time. It's, yeah, it's a long time, but you know, it's it's a lot. Of, you're carrying like six, seven, eight hundred thousand rounds. So you're talking about at least a good fifty plus pounds of yeah ammo. Yeah, you know, and then at Fort Drum, you've got all that cold weather gear, and I mean, you're loaded down for sure. Yeah, your knees are screaming, man. You remember your first ruck march as a uh, AG? Oh, it was awful. <laughs> <laughs> Cold. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I remember when they were like, you're going to be, you know, you're going to be the assistant gunner. And my gunner was amazing. He knew his stuff inside and out, and I learned a ton from him. Um, I, I learned a lot about being a soldier. I learned a lot about being a gunner, you know. And when I uh, when I became the gunner, like, I, I loved the job, and, and I felt like I was really prepared. And, like, that was one thing that I was like, I'm good at this job, you know, and I, I don't often feel that that way, but like, I really felt like I was good at that. Yeah. I mean, that's the promotion right there going from AG to gunner. You know, like I, it's the best feeling in the world. I don't care what anybody says. Being a machine gunner is the best job in the U S military. There's no better job than sending all those rounds down range, man. <laughs> yeah. It, you know, it was funny. My, uh, my assistant gunner could outruck me. When I became the gunner, he was this tall, skinny guy. And I was, <laughs> I, I've never been skinny, but I, I'm five five, you know. So I'm like having to take two steps for every one of his. And every time we did a ruck march around Riva Ridge Loop, like that kid was just smoking me, and he's like, "Come on, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up!" Oh, and, really? <laughs> yeah, like we got to Afghanistan uh -huh. and started climbing up, you know, Mount Ginger where the the Chinook got shot down and all that. We were climbing hand over hand in the snow. I mean, I was hooking the bipod legs on the rocks above my head and pulling up. And like we got there and I was like, all right, like I can do this. It's the you know, it's the, the fast paced stuff that gets me. But like I'm set here. Yeah, you know, I like I don't know. It was 
it was crazy scaling a, a snow covered mountain with a machine gun. <laughs> Slow and steady, man. So yeah. you're how old are you when you get deployed to Afghanistan? Uh, let's see. 23. 23. So what's going through your mind? America has just been attacked. This attack is worse than freaking Pearl Harbor, man. Like this is our generation's Pearl Harbor. Yeah, and really you is. are on the front line for it all. I was in high school still watching you all over there for Operation Anaconda and all those other operations just wanting to get in the fight. But no shit. There you were on the yeah. front line, man. <laughs> like what was it that was like from your perspective? It, you know, I mean, for, for my company, there wasn't a lot of action. Like, we got shot at a few times, and, I mean, it was a lot of, like, sniper fire here and there that, you know, you, you after you've been out there long enough, you'd see the rocks kick up next to you, and then you'd hear the shot from a distance, and you'd be like, what are they even shooting at? You know, like, it, it, got, <laughs> it got normal, and I was, like, thinking to myself, you know, it was my first time over there, and I'm like, this is, like, people are shooting at us, and we're just, like, kind of, eh, whatever. You know, I, we made contact one night and uh, the, the front of our, we were moving in a, like a, really the whole company was moving sort of in a column. Um, and all of a sudden I, he I heard automatic fire open up in the front and you know, my lieutenant grabbed me with my machine gun and was like, let's get to the top of this hill. And I was just like, wow, this is really about to happen. Like we're really doing this, you know? Um, and before we even got to the top of the hill, a Spectre gunship fired a couple of rounds and uh, we didn't find anything of who was shooting at us other than craters. But um, <laughs> I mean, it was it was really yeah, I don't even know. I mean, I grew up reading books about war and stuff and like the books I was reading were mostly about Vietnam. So like it was not the intense combat that you had in the jungle that was close, close up and personal and all that. Um but it was still like I felt like it was a pretty big deal. I didn't realize until we got back and they we, our Chinooks landed on the the tarmac at Bagram, and there's all these cameras lined up, and all the soldiers that were on the base were there welcoming us back. And it was like, oh, maybe this was a bigger deal than we realized. Like we thought we were just out, you know, running around the mountains doing some stuff. But uh, but it seemed like it was a pretty big deal. And then when I got home, especially, and realized how few people had been to Afghanistan at that point, it was like, okay, like. We're, we did something. <laughs> bro, y'all were the tip of the spear for this major operation, bro. I don't care what anybody says. You know, the Rangers and all that and special forces and all the, the special operators, yo, but y'all were the first large, you know, but infantry battalion on the ground to help lead the charge, man. Like I said, I was just at home watching on TV, like so amazed by what you all were doing and so motivated, man. I couldn't <laughs> wait to get into the fight. But, you know, read after reading your book and knowing my uh, my lack of cardio, because I was never a runner, <laughs> my black ass would have died in the mountains, man. <laughs> I don't think oh. I would have made it. Bro. I remember they told us after we got back that uh, we had been at about 10,500 feet and they were like, that's about the highest that conventional forces have fought, you know, any, any time recently, at least. But it was I don't know. It was an adventure for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I read a it was uh the story of John is John Chapman, right? The Air Force mm -hmm. controller, right? Yeah. Yep. I read uh one of the stories about that operation, you know, and when they got shot down, they had a group of rangers, you know, that had to strip off all their gear and just carry ammo and their weapons, you know, and they had to literally scale the side of a mountain for yep. like four or five hours just to get to the top of the crash site to help relieve those guys and reinforce them, man. And like people don't realize. You know, the war is over now, yo, but they don't realize how intense the fighting was in Afghanistan 
when it first started, when it first happened and started coming out, man, people had no clue what was going on. You know, and this is one of the first wars where people were watching like up close and personal. You know, we had Iraq after that kicked off, man. But Afghanistan was just so up close and personal. And the whole country was tuned in because, you know, America had been attacked. So we had all the support here in the States. Oh, yeah. It was definitely early enough that people were still people were still angry and still cared. Yep. But funny how quick that goes away, man. Right. You know, once, you know, once the war starts to inconvenience people's lives back here, everybody's just kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, uh, nobody cares anymore. That's the sad part of it. Yeah, it's interesting, too, that we went over there so early and we came back and people were like, oh, my gosh, you were over there. Like, what was it like? That's incredible. You know, and then the next time I deployed, it was like people were starting to like everybody knew somebody who had deployed by then almost, you know, and then the third deployment, it was just like business as usual. And then the fourth deployment, it was like, Oh, you're gone again. Oh, cool. Like, see you when you get back. Yeah. Like, I mean, the attitudes definitely changed. Yeah. yeah, The American people adapted to that real quick, man. So you come back in what, 2003 or 2002? Uh, We deployed. That was a short trip. We were there from December of Oh one to like April of Oh two. Yeah. And so you mentioned that that you listened to an episode of my podcast and you heard me le- read this letter of a soldier from Fort Drum. I believe it was from his parents or his, from him to his parents. And this soldier died at Fort Drum in a Black Hawk helicopter crash. Mm-hmm. And so I remember when I got to Fort Drum in uh, December 2003, people were still talking about this Black Hawk crash that killed a bunch of soldiers. Yeah. And now that was your your platoon, correct? Uh, it, it was a mix from our company, but Josh, the, the letter was from, he was in my platoon. Um, Tommy Young was in my platoon. Sergeant Eichenlob was our chemical NCO. Um, and, yeah, and then everybody else was kind of, kind of spread among different platoons. It was just, we were doing static load training. Um, so we were out at the airfield and they were the first group to go and the, the middle helicopter didn't come back when everybody else did. And it turned out that they had crashed in the woods. And now if you correct me if I'm wrong, if I read it right, you were supposed to have been on the helicopter, correct? Yeah. So I was a sergeant by then. Um, and my platoon sergeant came up and was like, Hey guys, like I've got two sergeants on the first lift for, for chalk two and no sergeants on the second lift for chalk two. So I'm going to have Sergeant Taylor move to the second lift. Um, and then Sergeant Harapko ended up being, you know, the other sergeant from our platoon. So he ended up staying on that bird and, and I got bumped to the second one. So, yeah, like, I mean, potentially that could have been me on that helicopter. So what goes through your mind you know, knowing that you were supposed to have been on this helicopter that crashed and it killed all your buddies, man? Like what's what goes through your mind the first thing when you learn of this? You know, they ushered us all, and I'm still, I mean, I was a sergeant, but, like, I was still pretty new in the Army. I didn't really know much about casualties and all. Uh Uh-oh, you froze up. Uh Uh-oh. I hate when that happens. Well, let me text my man. Maybe you're going to get him back. Maybe I'm going to get him back. Let me see. I'm going to take him out the green. 
in the green room and they try to bring them back in. Sorry about that, folks. I hate when that happens. Internet connection out there in Shelbyville ain't too great. Oh, yeah, yeah, he's gone. Well, till I wait for him to get back in here, I guess I'll just chat with y'all one on one. What am I going to chat about? Well, I don't know. Oh, wait, wait, here we go. There he is. He's back. Sorry, I was, I was like, like I can still I, hear I, you, but uh, <laughs> well, I say I'm about to go solo mode for a second, but I, I can hold it solo. But no, nah, so my bad. Go back. Go go ahead. So brother. you had asked what it was like when I when I learned what had happened. Um, really, they ushered us all into a room in the hangar out there at the airfield, and we sat and sat and sat, and it seemed like it was taking forever. And then finally, they came in, and they're like, "Hey, like you know, chalk one, lift two has crashed," and they're like, we're, we're trying to get to it right now, but, you know, we, we know that there's one, and, and I wrote about this in my book, that the, the platoon sergeant that was telling everybody this was like, you know, we, we believe that there's at least one, and he kind of paused, and then he said survivor, and it was like, my stomach just sank. It was like, you know, you're trying to think about who was on the helicopter, like I knew Sergeant Harapko was, but I didn't know exactly who else, um, you know, but it's just like, holy cow, like, I thought he was going to say one person had been killed, which is still terrible. I didn't expect that, you know, that, that it was everybody. Um, and it turned out that all four aviators were, were killed and seven guys from my company were killed. And we had two guys who actually survived. Man, the guys that have survived, are you still in contact with them or do you know how they're doing? Um, yeah, and not, not in close contact. Um, we're, we're going to be meeting up here in a couple of weeks at Fort Drum for the 20th anniversary of that crash. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'll be seeing uh, Dmitry Petrov. I know we'll be there. He was one of the one of the soldiers that survived. And then Edwin Mejia. Um, I don't think he'll be there. I haven't heard from him in probably a couple of years, but, I mean, they're surviving. Yeah, I can't imagine, you know, just the, you know, the guilt that comes with that. I tell people survivor's guilt is real. And I tell people, we only think about soldiers when they go overseas and get hurt and get killed. I'm like, bro, I'm like, training in the States is just as dangerous. Yeah. And we have lost lots of soldiers stateside. I mean, there was a horrible incident in Alaska, I believe, a couple months ago. And I think a soldier got eaten by a bear in Alaska, bro. They were like, Oh, I hadn't heard about that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, awesome. out, yeah, out training, yeah, and just got caught by a bear. You're like, man, like that's the stuff that doesn't ever make the news and nobody ever hears about. But training accidents happen, man, and that's the dangerous part of the job. It ain't just yeah. you know going to combat. It's when you're stateside, no garrison and complacency sets in you know and people get bored and you know yep. you're not you no know, staying on top of your guys and one mistake and just like that man and i mean nobody even has to do anything wrong it just happens yeah well and i know yeah th i mean there were some training accidents while i was at fort drum where people got shot um you know live fire accidents sometimes there's just a ricochet but I, I mean, I was there when people got injured. I, you know, I was I was at Fort Drum when some people got killed in training, and then of course we had that helicopter crash. Um, and I got home that night when we finally were released, and my wife was in a panic because she knew there was a helicopter crash, and all the wives were calling each other about who was who, you know, who was where, and had they heard anything. And of course, they wouldn't let us call anyone until families had been notified and all that. But we finally got to go home, and my wife was like. You know, I opened the door of our apartment in Watertown and she was like, oh, my gosh, are you OK? And I was like, I'm hungry. <laughs> and she's like, what do you mean you're hungry? Like a bunch of guys from your unit were just killed. And I was like, it's a dangerous job and people die. Like. And at the time, I think I was just like, 
I'm just not processing this at all, you know, young and, and in shock, man. Yeah. And, and I like every time we've lost people in the military, it's always been like, I'm just going to pack that away and I'll deal with it later. <laughs> Compartmentalize. We are very, very good at that. Yeah. You know, but unfortunately over the years, it eventually kind of creeps back up on us and catches up with us at some point in time. You know, oh, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm guilty of that. Lord knows I am, you know, but that's just a coping and survival mechanism you have when you're, a freaking infantry soldier you know you know people are going to die and right. you can't function or do your job if you are constantly what was me you know my friend died and just had you know you gotta suppress that man you got a job to go do you gotta close with and you know destroy the enemy man that's what we have to do and you can't do that in your feelings unfortunately yeah. and that's you know the, the military teaches you how to turn that switch on but they don't teach you how to turn it off unfortunately when you know you mentioned survivor's guilt and that's definitely real but then there's also the guilt for for sometimes feeling like oh my gosh that could have been me like i'm glad it wasn't me you know and then you feel guilty for feeling that way yeah and you shouldn't but you know it's just that's just the natural order of things because you know of course you know as especially as a sergeant you know these guys entrust their lives to you and your leaders and their families entrust them to you and when they don't come home you know, you're going to you're going to weigh that on yourself as your own responsibility, because that's what an NCO and a leader is. But like I said, you had nothing to do with it. It wasn't your fault. It just things happen, man. And you just have to kind of learn to put the pieces together and go forward, man. But that, that's horrible. And I, I can't believe it's been 20 years. My God. Yeah. yeah Jeez, man. I'm like, I got all this gray. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you didn't have that on the uh, cover, cover, cover of your, uh, no, your book. <laughs> Let me. Do you remember another incident? I believe it was with the artillery unit. I remember when I got there, they were saying that an artillery unit had shot a round, and apparently they accidentally blew up a chow hall somewhere. I, like, I, I think it was a field chow hall or on base. Somewhere. I don't think it was on base, but you know, they shot around, you know, and it like blew up a field chow know, hall or something. That that seems vaguely familiar. Like I, I I couldn't tell you any detail. I feel like I do remember hearing something about that, but yeah. I mean that that impact area out there by by the machine gun zero range at fort drum that overlooked the impact area it's crazy watching those artillery rounds land out there sometimes there's running through there <laughs> yep yep oh dude i remember when the uh the new york national guard you know they were coming over to train at a range i wasn't there but my buddies were telling me you know, that something happened with the range where all soldiers were shooting one way and apparently they didn't get clearance from the other way. And apparently the New York, New York National Guard was on the other side. And my friend was like, apparently they started returning fire. Oh. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Go Army. Right. Way to go, range control. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Somebody lost their job over that, hopefully. You know? so, but man, right. so, man, you, you go to Afghanistan first. And then after that, what's your next deployment? Uh, May of 2003, we went to Djibouti. Okay. Yeah, People always Africa. Africa. Like I said, Djibouti. Um, yeah. <laughs> I never but, got to go to Djibouti. But. <laughs> yeah. So we went over there. And again, it was, it was just my company. Like my battalion was split. And we sent a company to Afghanistan and one to Iraq and then one to Africa where we were. And then our HHC was split between us. Um, I don't never understood why we were doing company deployments, but it was kind of cool because we had That's a lot weird. of freedom. Yeah. Um, but so we went to, we started off in Djibouti. We had some guys go down to Kenya doing some work with SEALs. And then we spent time back and forth between Djibouti and Ethiopia. And they told us when we got there that it was going to be um, basically that 
Taliban and Al Qaeda were moving back and forth from Yemen into Somalia and, and, and like I said, back and forth and that they were putting us in the middle and they were basically making it public knowledge that the same soldiers who had been in Operation Anaconda were down here hoping that they would start something is what, what we were told. But really, <laughs> we, uh, we did a lot of training. We did some fast rope training, um, a lot of ranges and, and stuff, a lot of sweating because it was Africa. Um, and then, I mean, we did some cool stuff down there. Like we got to secure a, the Golden Spear Symposium in 2003, which is a bunch of national defense leaders and, and na nation leaders in Africa were getting together in the capital of Ethiopia. So we stood around the hotel like Secret Service wearing civilian clothes with a, you know, a little earpiece <laughs> and a pistol tucked in our, our back, um, just guarding the hotel, basically. But we also had QRF set up in the hotel with, you know, a squad in, in two rooms on opposite sides of the hotel with, you know, their their machine guns and their M4s and their body armor and helmets and, I mean, ready to go if anything happened. Um, so that was kind of cool. That was just a platoon-sized mission. So it was just my platoon hanging out up there for a couple of weeks. It was like nice. Um, but yeah, like it was, it was kind of a letdown after going to Afghanistan, we were like, all right, we're going to go to Africa and start some shit. And then we didn't do anything. Yeah. Well, you didn't start no shit, no shit there, but you definitely started some shit when you went to Iraq, correct? In what? 2005. Um, actually I went to Afghanistan again in 0405 with 25th infantry. Um, and then I went to Iraq from December of 07 to like January of 09 during the service. Okay. Yeah, so you have a total of four deployments, correct? Yep. So what, two Afghanistan deployments, Djibouti, and one Iraq? Yep. So when you when you, you went to Iraq, what, 2007, correct? Yeah. During the surge. Mm -hmm. So let me ask you, as a man, as a soldier who has fought in Afghanistan and Iraq, what was similar and what was different? Um, I mean, honestly, the... There were a lot of similarities. I mean, it's hot, it's desert, it's cold in the winter. Um, I mean, you got the same same kind of stuff in the rural areas. I mean, the the buildings look the same. They've all got the the mud brick walls around them, and they're all driving you know Mercedes and BMWs or those old like white and orange cabs. Like, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you got the jingle trucks and the little flatbed. You know, I don't even know what what make they were. Um, like, and of course, you've got, you know, all, all your major camps set up and and everything. Iraq was more developed than Afghanistan. I mean, we built the ring highway, you know, as a coalition in Afghanistan, because really everything was dirt before that. Pretty much. I remember I've got this picture of a sign entering the city of Kandahar. That's like, welcome to Kandahar. Help keep our city green. And I'm like, there isn't anything green here. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> kind of hard went woke back like, in the day <laughs> it's like it's dirt and more dirt you know but like every mud house has a satellite dish on the top um but you know going to iraq like it, it was interesting flying in i mean the kandahar international airport is tiny compared to Bayat, right like bio's you know, huge yeah it, it was you know and seeing all of the uh i mean they had all those huge tall t-walls separating everything and all that in Iraq. And like, that wasn't really a thing in, in Afghanistan. It had been Hesco's. And I mean, the first time I was there, it was sandbags. And I mean, we were living in GP mediums with dirt floors. And um, so Iraq was way more modern and way more developed. And like the, the places that I was in, in Iraq seemed way more populated. Definitely, man. So 
the fighting in Iraq versus Afghanistan. Tell me if this is true. I've heard somebody describe it as Afghanistan. You don't know who's shooting at you from where because the distance is much greater that you're fighting at Iraq. You can see the dude's eyes pretty much because it's more confined spaces and a lot more urban combat. Yeah, I mean, that's fair. Like I, I personally, I mean, we were in in some pretty intense firefights in Iraq, I felt like. Um, and I would say like they were still pretty well hidden in buildings and rooftops and stuff like that. But we were in an urban city. I mean, I felt like I was in, in a firefight in St. Louis versus, you know, <laughs> hearing a gunshot from a mile away and seeing dirt kick up 10 yards away. I mean, it, it was definitely a different experience. Yeah, I'm sure the pucker factor in a gunfight in St. Louis is about the same, brother. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> With that echo, man, you don't know where it's coming from. Yeah. And, you know, and I like... We were we were patrolling mostly a rural area north of Taji uh, along Highway One in Iraq, um, and it, you know there were IEDs occasionally, and you'd hear gunshots in the distance. But really, it was pretty boring. Like we were just walking around, meeting these farmers and drinking chai with the sheikhs, and yeah, like just we're like you know we'll help you build a school and we'll we'll get you medicine and all that kind of stuff. And and really, it was it was kind of a letdown. And then in March, we got called down to Solder City to support the unit that was there because they were just they were firing rockets in the green zone and like they were trying to get it under control. So they sent us down. And that I mean, the first day we were down there, like bullets are zipping and snapping. And it's like, oh, OK, here we are. Like, <laughs> yeah, the Medi Army was no joke, man. You Like our Bravo company lost all their guys in Solder City. It, but for some odd reason, our company, Alpha Company 214, you know, we never went into Solder City. You know, we got sent to Abu Ghraib. You know, but. Yeah. Man, you boys in Solder City, man, hats off to you all. The Medi Army was no joke. Yeah, it was. I mean, that was what I felt like combat should be. I mean, seeing bombs go off and, you know, mortars and rockets and you've got Apache gunships flying over and just lighting stuff up. And I mean, I, I can remember being on a rooftop and hearing a bullet snap when it passed by. And then I heard the shot and I'm like. You know, there's a sniper somewhere around and then our snipers would call us and they, they're blocks behind us on a taller building. And they're like, oh, yeah, that was us. We just took out a guy <laughs> 400 yards in front of you. You know, it's like, <laughs> <appreciate> it. <laughs> hey, bro, take that sniper to the defect, man, and uh, let right. him get whatever he wants. Exactly. Speaking of defects, man, that's one. Another similarity with your book and mine, man, is you were talking about the Chow Hall Nazis. And man, can you elaborate to the people about what the Chow Hall Nazis are? Yeah, so they had, had these rules on Taji that if you were dirty, you couldn't go in the Chow Hall. And if you were in the wrong uniform, if you were wearing your combat T-shirt instead of your zip-up ACU shirt, you couldn't go in there. And, you know, if your boots were dirty and if you, I mean, all this like garrison type rules about like you know people are trying to eat you can't smell bad or be dirty or whatever but it was like the rules were there for all the people who lived on taji i think it wasn't for <laughs> people who were outside the wire every day and i mean everybody has a job and everybody contributes but sometimes when you're a dirty grunt it's frustrating when you come back from patrol and you've got 10 minutes until chow closes and they won't let you guys go in and get something to eat even though you've been on patrol for who knows how long you know and it's like all these people that are doing taco tuesday and salsa <laughs> night and yeah. you know they're getting ice cream after every meal calling home whenever they feel like it and it, it's like they're doing all that stuff and then we come in from like 
sweating and getting shot at and dodging roadside bombs. And they're like, no, no, you're too dirty to eat. Like, it just was aggravating. It's so crazy how it, when America, like we have it so good, even in our military, that people go to war and they don't realize that they're at war. It, because they, I mean, they have literally, literally all the amenities that they had at home, it, they have on base. It, and they don't have to leave outside the walls because they didn't choose a combat job like us. And understand that, hey, man, combat's not for everybody. But even Pogues and Rimps need heroes. That is why God created the infantry, my man. You know, somebody's got, like you said in your book, somebody has to go do the fighting. And the serious business of war and combat is ugly and not for everybody. So what I mean, what what goes through your mind when you're trying to go eat? You've been shot at, you know, you've seen your buddy get killed and you want to go grab a hot meal because you have not had a hot meal in days. And you and your boys been eating MREs, yo, and you got this. If you're listening, people out there, a pogue, that means people other than grunts or rimp, which means rear echelon, motherfucker. <laughs> people that don't that aren't combat related arms. I what mean, goes honestly, mind when, when you go to try to eat and this dude's telling you. You can't eat in this chow hall because you're dirty. It, it wasn't even just the chow. It was like when they stop you because your uniform was too dirty and you, you know, or or you don't have a clean haircut or a clean shave or any of that. It's like you just, I mean, really, you just want to hit them. Yeah. <laughs> you, you yeah. Like, you know, go home. Yeah. Um, I mean, like anger. And of course, you're already amped up from, from, I mean, we were living out of our trucks. They did. You said we were eating MREs. They did bring us out a box of frozen pizzas one time. I mean, just little individual frozen pizzas, <laughs> like we had a microwave or an oven, you know. So we actually took the we took the rack out of a refrigerator from one of the houses we were staying in and scraped all the paint or the rubber or whatever coating off of the bars and set it on top of soda cans on top of their top of their chai stove and cooked our pizzas. <laughs> on some lead paint, bro. You better go get yeah, checked by the VA, man. Right. Right. Um, <laughs> But no, I mean, it was just infuriating that like, and it was always some, you know, master sergeant or some sergeant major from somewhere who's, you know, just they're worried about, you know, making sure that the rocks are lined up in front of their tent neatly. And, you know, like that's what they're worried about. And, and he, you know, like you're already angry from being out in the street and you're tired and, and you're just like you've been in contact and in the action for days and like you just want to sit down in the air conditioning and and eat something and they're like no 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 like i mean you just like see red man i i know that still sticks with me brother and that's why i'm glad you put that story in your book so we can tell <laughs> people that you know what just because we're at war does not mean that everybody is at war <laughs> How you go on deployment and get fatter, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I remember having the the rocket attack sirens going off at Taji one time. And I think I was processing some detainees or something that I had snatched up on a raid. And I stepped outside because, I mean, being a grunt and having been through stuff, like people run for the for the shelters. But all, all the grunts are kind of like, yeah. <laughs> So <laughs> just another day. <laughs> like I stepped out of the building where we were processing these detainees and this private comes running up from, I don't know what unit, some probably reservist or something. And he's got his M4 like up at his shoulder and he's just like swinging around and he's like <laughs> just panicking. And he's like, Sergeant, can you give me a ride to my unit? I don't, I don't know what to do. And I'm like, private, put your weapon down. You don't even have a magazine in it. <laughs> oh, I mean, nothing, you, you're not going to shoot a rocket or a mortar. Like you need to calm down when you go to, your, you know, like, 
But he was just like freaking out. And I'm like, dude, like if it's going to land on you, it's going to land on you. There ain't nothing you can do about it. <laughs> yeah, bro, it's your time, man. It's your time, bro. I think that's one thing I put in my book was shrapnel just does not care about your MOS when it lands in the base, bro. Anybody can get it and catch it, unfortunately. Yep. Man, so you do four deployments and then you decide it's time to hang up the boots and leave the military. How was that decision for you? You know, it was actually, I, I made that decision as we were getting ready for the fourth deployment. We were in Hawaii. We had a bunch of new guys and it was like DUIs and bar fights every weekend. Of course, you're on an island and you've got Marines and Air Force and Navy and Army and Coast Guard all there. There's bar fights all the time, right? And then also the locals don't really love all the military people there. So that adds to it. Um, and it got to the point where we were having such issues, like my unit was calling in leaders every weekend and you know, they're like, you need to check in with each of your soldiers every Friday and Saturday night. And I'm like, man, like trying to hang out with my wife, hang out with my son, getting ready to be gone for 14 months. And like, I'm doing this stupid stuff like babysitting. Right. And like, it wasn't my guys that were getting in trouble and they would promise to be like, Oh, Friday, we're doing payday activities. Y'all are going to get off at noon or whatever. So I'd be like, Hey honey, like we're going to be off at noon on Friday. Like, why don't you take the boy to daycare? We'll go out. We'll spend a day at the beach or something. Just the two of us. Then it's like six o'clock and I'm finally getting off work and she's mad because she took him to daycare and didn't need to. And she still had to pick him up because I didn't get off in time. And I was just like, I kind of want to stay married and I think I've done my share. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we just, you know, we stayed up talking. Like it was one night I was so frustrated and, and I was like, look, like I understand that you're mad at me and you're disappointed, but like you're mad at me for doing things that I also don't want to do. And I'm mad about. So like, yeah, and it wasn't her fault. Like she, I mean, she, we've been married now for God, almost 22 years. Like, I mean, she's been with me the whole time through all the deployments, like, you know, going to school after the army. Like, I don't know, like she's been my rock the whole time. Right. But like we were struggling to, to deal with the army and a new baby and being all the way out in Hawaii away from everybody we knew. Um, you know, even, I mean, we had amazing friends at Fort Drum and like we had some great friends in Hawaii, but it just wasn't the same. Our Fort Drum friends, like never had other friends like them since we left there. Um, place. And, you know, so we had decided that like I was going to get out and go back to school. I wasn't really sure for what, but I was just like, I got to get through this last deployment. And, and honestly, like I was pretty sure that I wouldn't make it through Iraq. Like I had friends deploy. I was in Afghanistan my second time and my best friend from Fort Drum was in Iraq with a unit from Fort Lewis and got killed. And I was just like, man, like four deployments is too much for one person. And of course at that time, most people still hadn't been deployed, you know, maybe twice. Um, and I was just like, I'm testing the odds too much. And like, I've had a lot of friends go over there and get messed up and either injured or killed. And I was just like, I'm, th this is going to be my time. Um, which obviously I'm still here, but, uh, no shit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, like, so yeah, you know, it was, I mean, it was a tough decision because like, I felt like I was good in the, at the army, you know, and even I was overseas and got selected for Sergeant first class. And I mean, I got out before I saw that promotion, but, uh, it was, you know, it, it was a tough decision, but like, I was, I was frustrated and I was ready to, ready to be done. So let me ask So how many years did you do total? Uh, like nine and a half, nine and a half years, man. I mean, four deployments, three combat, one, two Africa, you think about all the loss, and I mean, not just the loss, you know, personally, 
talking about the loss of the thousands of, I think, over 5,000 in Iraq. I mean, the many wounded. And then you got the guys in Afghanistan getting hurt and killed. All that. And with what we know now about the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, some people said, you know, these wars were unjust and we should have never went there. And, and does how you feel about what you did overseas, how do you deal with that when you hear people say, these wars were unjust and that America should have never been there. You know, I mean, I think that people choose to serve for their own reasons. And, and I had my own reasons. Like I always kind of idolized Vietnam vets and, and just was amazed at what they had been through. And I was like, man, like those guys are heroes. And like, wouldn't it be cool to be like that? Um, you know, I joined the army, not expecting to go to war, but when we were called on, we went, you know, and we did what we were supposed to do. We, did the best we could. And I know a lot of people, I mean, even, even today soldiers are, you know, like, Oh, you're baby killers or you're criminals or murderers or whatever. And, you know, like we were, I mean, giving kids school supplies and clothes and dropping off food. And I, I felt like we did way more positive than we did negative over there, you know? And of course, I mean, if, if you're asking somebody over there, they may give you a very different picture of that, but like there was never, at least where I was at, there was never anything malicious, like done in a, a, like, I'm not even sure what I'm trying to say. Like we were trying to do our jobs and do them well. And we were not over there trying to cause problems and like target the wrong people or like cause more harm than, than good. Like, do I think that we need to spread democracy to the whole world? Probably not. Like, I don't know that the rest of the world wants it, you know? So, um, you know, and, and I've had people be like, well, you never should have been in Iraq. And I'm like, well, maybe not. But we ignore the fact that after Desert Storm, like those guys continued to shoot at our planes in no fly zones all the way up until we invaded in 2003. Like Saddam Hussein probably needed to go. And like while we didn't find an active weapons of mass destruction program there, we did find plenty of chemical rounds. I mean, we set up a camp and oh, yeah. there was just piles of gas masks and stuff. So, you know, it was there. And like, you know, some people would say that Iraq was way better after Saddam Hussein. And some people would say that Saddam Hussein ruled with an iron fist. And that's what those people need. Like, I don't know what the right answer was, but my guys all served honorably and did everything that we asked them to do. And, you know, that's one thing I tell veterans and I have to tell myself that regardless of these wars being just or not, my reason to go and fight is honest and it was pure. And we cannot let politicians steal our honor and our dignity as soldiers for being told to go fight in a war that, hey, was there some under stuff, you no know, stuff going on on the table we didn't like with KBR? Of course there was. Yo, they was making money hand over fist. But guess oh, what? For sure. Yeah, that but that was not our job. Our but job you, was simple. You know, I, and we I had believe, to do our job. I believe that's every war. I mean, every war. Yes. You know, there's always it's it's politicians who send boys over to fight, right? Like that's, you know, like if you have a problem with that, talk to the person that you elected, not the person who got sent to go and fight. Yeah, George Bush didn't force either of us to sign up, you know, and go and fight. You know, we to join. We knew what the job entailed, and you know, and that's something you have to make peace with. You know, every time you go outside the wire, regardless of the political reasons or affiliations, it does not matter to the soldier on the ground. Now it might matter to that guy in the chow hall that got more time to think about it. <laughs> you know, it, it might matter to that guy, but to us out on the front line day in and day out, it did not matter. The only thing that mattered was 
surviving and getting back home. I remember being home on R&R and I was sitting in the airport the day after the 2008 presidential debate. And this older woman and this younger guy were arguing about who they thought had won the debate. And I'm sitting there in my uniform, pissed off because I'm getting ready to fly to Atlanta and then go back to Iraq. And she's like, well, this old older woman turns around. She's like, well, I want to know what this young man right here thinks about who won. <laughs> and I was just like, I don't like any politicians, so it doesn't matter to me. My man. <laughs> <laughs> she looked like she was so uncomfortable, but I was just like, no, like, I don't, like, it doesn't matter. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know, no, but you know, people get so bogged down in their party and this and that, you know, and they miss the big picture that at the end of the day, which is the sad part, man. You know, the, that's why I do my podcast. I try to stay as neutral as possible. I tell you, yeah, I'm a conservative, and unfortunately, I'm a, a Republican, although I don't really <laughs> see much identity with them right now because it's a mess and I don't see no real difference between the left and the right. Yeah, so I'm kind of a political nomad, yo, but. You know, my like, principles want, and my values are what they are. <laughs> I just want some common sense leadership who's really going to do what's best for the people in the uh, country. Good luck with that. You know, like that's, <laughs> but that, isn't that the dream? Like somebody who's going to serve like the whole country and not just their party or, you know, and, and I know that they yeah. believe that their party is is what's best for the people. But I'm like, man, we just need some like common sense leaders who are going to be like, yeah, like I know that this is what my party would think, but. Like, realistically, maybe we need to stick towards the middle. <laughs> Man, you know, it, I, it, was, it sounds so easy, doesn't it? It, it does. sounds so easy until you work for government and you realize <laughs> common sense don't live nowhere around right, here. Right. <laughs> so you finally get What year did you get out of the Army? 2009. 2009. You're out of the Army, man. What's that path look like to get you to where you are now, where you're at a school? Well, I signed a, a one-year contract with the Army Reserve and was assigned to a, a drill sergeant unit in Granite City, Illinois. And I got there and they're like, we're going to get you ready to go to drill sergeant school. We need drill sergeants at Fort Leonard Wood and all these places. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, <laughs> I'm, I'm just getting <laughs> home. I've got another child on the way and I'm about to start school. And you're trying to mobilize me for a year to go be a drill sergeant. Like, I think I'm going to go ahead and pass, you know, so... Man. <laughs> I, I did my year and stepped away. Also, I didn't like, I mean, there were some great guys there. Like my first sergeant was an awesome guy. My platoon sergeant was an awesome guy, but I had, you know, this little E5, also a 10th mountain vet. He'd been an, an engineer or something, but he had been to drill sergeant school. So he's walking around in his drill sergeant hat with his, you know, sergeant stripes and, and telling me to go take out the trash and all this. And I'm like, whoa, 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 sergeant. Like <laughs> you're missing that rocker there. <laughs> you know, and I was just like, I'm not, not really dealing with all this. So I didn't stick around. You know, I, I finished out my obligation and, and was done, uh, which sometimes I regret because I wouldn't mind having the retirement. I'd be retired by now. Um, but I enrolled at Eastern Illinois University, which is college town right next to my hometown in Charleston, Illinois, and started going to school there. And I had taken advantage of the Army's tuition assistance and finished up an associate's degree while I was in the Army. Um really didn't help me. It still took me four years to finish up a bachelor's anyway. Um, luckily, Illinois has a Illinois veterans grant. So my the state covered my tuition and I was able to use the GI Bill on top of that. Um, majored in history, minored in English and did secondary and, and middle school certifications in both subjects so I could teach. And then started teaching middle school history at a private school in Illinois up in Champaign. Man, from machine gunner to teacher. 
That is definitely. <laughs> well, people always ask me, they're like, ah, why would you want to teach history? And I was like, I literally get to talk about war every day. It's like I'm getting my fix. <laughs> <laughs> did you always wanted to be a teacher or did you have other no, aspirations? You know, I mean, I had a I had a really great like my ROTC instructors in high school were awesome. And really, I had always kind of been like, man, if I ever went in the army when I got out, that's what I would want to do is be a high school ROTC instructor. Cause it like that, that was my life in high school was drill team and rifle team and, and just hanging out in that classroom. Um, all my friends were in there, you know? Um, but no, like I, when I left the army, I was kind of like, I can do whatever I want, you know? And of course I knew when I went in the army that like as an infantryman, I'm not going to have all these skills when I get out. Right. Like I'm not going to be an, an engineer or whatever. But I also was like, oh, like I'll I'll be ready to do anything. And people are going to respect that. Like I was in the military, so I've got leadership skills and I've got this and that. And really, like when I started looking at job applications and stuff, I'm like, I really don't have a whole lot to to translate to civilian employment here. Um, you know, but but I worked through that and it was you know, the, the whole idea of teaching. Like I had a couple of soldiers who I really had a hard time getting. You know, I mean, they were just always causing problems. Couldn't, couldn't show up in the right uniform at the right time. Couldn't, I mean, like I had this kid in a live fire and I was like walking him through every step to set up a claymore. And I'm like, okay, now do this, now do this, now do this. So then we run out and this is at Fort Drum in training. And we run out of the trench at the trench live fire and go to set up the claymore and we get up there. I'm like, all right, pull your claymore out. And he was like, I left it in the trench. And I'm like, oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. Like, like, you know, I deploy with this kid. And I, I mean, I had smoked this kid and screamed at him and like done everything I could think of. And finally, one day I was like, I don't know how to help you. What do you, what do you need? From me? You know, I mean, this kid was like a, a total mouth breather. I mean, just like, you know, I don't know how to help you. And, and he's just like, Oh man! If I'm not looking at you when you're talking to me, then I'm not listening. And man. I was like, okay. So then from then on, I'm like, hey man, like, are you paying? You with me? And he was like, yes, sergeant. And like, he was fine. Like, I just had to make sure he was he was with me. Um, but like, getting to know each of my soldiers and know like how to connect with them and how to motivate them and what they needed from a leader to get them to perform at their best. Like that really kind of made me think, you know, I could teach. Um, then when I was stationed in Hawaii, I fell in love with surfing. And every time we had visitors come out and, and stay with us, I would always teach them how to surf. And like, I mean, I never was a great surfer, but I was good enough that I could go out and, and have a good time. And I could always teach people to at least stand up and ride a wave. Um, and I enjoyed like seeing them be successful at that and do something that they didn't think they could do. So that was really kind of when I started thinking about teaching. And I also, I was like, well, I'll be a cop. Like my stepdad was a cop. Um, it fits like I can walk around and carry a gun and, you know, kick in a door if I need to. Um, but I started school and I started looking at police departments and really I tested for the Champaign police department when I was a, a junior in college, or I might've had a semester left. Um, I tested, I interviewed, I did the physical test and they're like, all right, you're top of the list. And I'm like, awesome. That's great. And then I got a letter that's like, we're not hiring this year. You're welcome to test again next year. And at that point, I'm like, well, I'm going to be graduating. So, um, so yeah, I'm, 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 I'm torn between being a cop or being a teacher, and I ended up being a teacher. Hey, plot twist. That young private you were having trouble with, he probably 
<laughs> went green to gold and is now a colonel somewhere. <laughs> it's funny. He's, he's one of the one of the guys that I, I actually have no idea whatever ended up with him. Um, and I said we had some like a string of suicides from both of my units back in like 2014. Oh, man. I created a couple of Facebook groups for those like for my Iraq deployment and one for that first group of like Afghanistan and Africa guys. Um, and really, I mean, I've got like everybody from the battalion commander down to like the lowest privates at the time wow. are all in those groups. I mean, one of them is about 300 people and one of them is about 500. Um, so really it's like a whole battalion and then like a company plus, you know? Um, but I, I started getting those guys reconnected and it was great because they started telling stories and sharing pictures and reconnecting. And then it was kind of like, well, Hey, I'm going here this weekend who lives the, you know, nearby. And, um, so it seemed like so almost like an alumni group, right? Like it seemed like it really made a difference for those guys that were struggling um, and just kind of put them back in touch with their friends that they've been missing. But he's one who I, I don't know if he's just not on social media or what, but I've never, never been able to track him down. Rumor has it that he's still in the trench looking for his Claymore. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, we're I'm in a group like that, you know, and I'll tell you what, man, those groups are they're awesome to be around and awesome to be in touch with those guys. That's the good part of social media. As much as I hate social media, yeah. the great part is you're able to stay in touch with guys. I mean, that I mean, we deployed. God, man, it's been 18, 19, almost 19 years since I was in the army and we're all able to get on there, say what's up and say, Hey, and almost pick up just like we were just on guard duty together, like an hour ago. Yeah. So, man, that's, that's awesome to have those guys and see how everybody developed. But you know, it's also sad, man. Like today, this morning, I got a text message from a guy I used to serve with it from his girlfriend. And she was like, Hey, our kid died and we need $300 for a funeral. Wow. And I'm just like, well, man, he needs had problems because you know, he got off on drugs and he's an addict. And I'm looking and I'm just like, man, and it breaks my heart because it's like, you know how great of a soldier this guy was. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, you know, life has not been kind to him. He's not made great decisions. And yep. now, you know, they're, they got this addiction, this drug addiction, you know, the army put them in this place and nobody's really helping them. And to see them, to see a man that used to fight and serve with honor now stooping to the level of saying, hey, our kid's dead. We need money. And, you know, that's not the case, man. It hurts. But that's why I'm glad we have those units and those groups to kind of help kind of, you know, you know, it it takes accountability, man. And iron sharpens iron and having those guys around still, man, I'm sure it helps a lot of people. I mean, when you start having all those suicides, it kind of it's kind of a wake up call for all of us, you know? Yep. But and I, I've definitely seen those guys that, you know, they reach out and they're like, oh, I'm, I'm stranded. I lost my wallet or whatever. And it's like, dude, you, you told me you lost your wallet six weeks ago. Yeah. And then you hit up this person and this person and this person with a different story six weeks ago. It's like, get help. <laughs> yeah. And it sucks, man. You wish you could help them, but we yeah. can't be enablers, man. And just to go from being a warrior to being a drug addict, it's like, it's beyond my mind. And, but I, I see how it happens and I hate it. Yep. You know, and I, we want the best for them, but there's really nothing we can do at this point. Yeah. <clears throat> man. So, what brought, how did you end up here in Kentucky from Illinois? Uh, I haven't so, got to that part of the book yet. <laughs> <laughs> um, so really, I mean, my wife, you know, but gosh, when we got married, she was still going to Southern Illinois University in Carbondale, Illinois, and I was at Fort Drum and we got married. She moved up there while I was in Afghanistan. Um, luckily, we had eloped before we were having our big wedding, so we were already married and 
all that to get housing taken care of. Um, sorry for family who didn't know that. There's still some around. <laughs> <laughs> it's not too, it's not too late to send a wedding gift. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, she followed me around for 10 years in the army almost. And then even after when I was like, I'm going to go to school and it's going to be easiest if we go home and do this. Um, so neither one of us really wanted to stay in our hometown. We actually, we, you know, we feel like we, we were able to stay married for so long because we got married and immediately moved halfway across the country. So we didn't have anybody else to lean on except for each other and the friends we made there, but it wasn't like you could just be like, well, I'm going home, you know, like no home is five States away. Um, so we grew up together really from, I mean, we got married at 21. Um, and <clears throat> now I'm trying to think, I guess, we, yeah, we, we eloped at 21 cause it was before Afghanistan. Um, so yeah, we got married, grew up together across the country from everybody we knew and all of our, our, you know, safety nets, I guess. So come back, we both got in our hometown and we're like, we didn't really want to stay there. There's not much there. Um, and we kept thinking like, oh, we'll get out of our hometown and move, move away somewhere at some point. Um, but then we realized it's like, man, like the army doesn't move you. There's no automatic, like, yeah. <laughs> no it, stipends. It, it, yeah. It's just like moving with the army. Like you, you knew you'd have a place the day you got there, whether it was a hotel room or something, but it was covered and your furniture would be moved and your cars mm-hmm. would be moved. And, you know, like you, you would automatically have a community wherever you landed, like, <laughs> Somebody's going to reach out to you and be like, hey, welcome to wherever, you know. Welcome to civilian life, bro. <laughs> right. Right. So we were like, it's like the longer we were in our hometown, the more we were starting to feel like we, you know, we bought a house and we had another child and like we were planting roots. And it was just like, man, like we don't really want to do this. So my wife ended up, she was running an old Navy store and she's always been a, a cleaner. So she worked for old Navy. She became a store manager of a store that was not performing well and fixed it. Right. She put, put together a, a team to turn the store around. And then they were like, awesome. That store is a well-oiled machine. Now we've got another one for you. Um, so they moved her to a different store, did the same thing. And then she got hired by Polo Ralph Lauren. And they were like, Hey, we're going to put you in this small store that's in your area just until we have a better opportunity for you because your experience level and your ability is far above this small little outlet polo store. Um, so it was 2016. We were actually in Louisville. My son was shooting in the national archery tournament at the convention center as a sixth grader. And we popped into the polo store at the Simpsonville outlets. And my wife called her boss and was like, I'm just leaving the Simpsonville store. And it's a train wreck. Like, the store's a mess. The team's a mess, like whatever. And he was like, well, do you think you could fix it? And she was like, yeah. So, um, I finished out the school year, you know, and she moved down here over the summer and started working. And then I moved down here with the kids at the end of the summer. And I, I mean, I was, had no idea. I was like, I'm not going to teach anymore. I did that for three years and I was over it. Right. I'm like, Nope. I've realized that after being in the army, I like to move or change what I'm doing about every three years. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm right there with you, man. <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, no, it's been about three years. Something different. And I'm like, I think that's the army's fault because we change duty stations about that often. Um, but we ended up, we came down here, we moved to Shelbyville, and my wife was trying to find people to hire. So we went to the community college, JCTC out here. 
and we were looking for a career office and it turned out that this like special high school was renting half of the college campus out here and and doing this new innovative thing um and we went into the wrong office we went into the principal's office and <laughs> and my wife was like i'm just looking for you know like i'm trying to hire people and he was like well let me tell you about what we do and like the school does internships and all this stuff um i was in like cargo shorts and flip-flops and probably like an army pt shirt <laughs> or something and had a beard that was like this right chill mode man and he was like what do you do and i was like i don't do nothing right now <laughs> you know at this point my wife is like it's time to be thinking about a job you know um, but i was like you know i was a teacher before we moved to kentucky i was like but i don't i don't think i'm gonna do that now i don't know what i'm gonna do i'm looking for a job well then he called me a few weeks later and he was like hey man like what do you teach because i got an opening so I ended up going to teach in, in Shelby County at that school. And then I did that for a few years, three years. And then I, <laughs> I told my principal the other day, I'm like, I'm on year four here. So uh, <laughs> get ready for a change. <laughs> and then, so let me ask you, so where you're teaching it now, I'm not going to say the name because I don't want to put your, where you're at now, yo, but it's in, we'll say it's in Louisville, man. And there's a lot of at risk, risk youth where you're teaching at, correct? Oh yeah. All of man, them. What does it do for you as a man who has been to combat? I mean, you've seen people shot and killed. You know, you've seen the unspeakable in war. What does it do for you mentally knowing that you have young kids out here in the streets that are living literally in a combat zone, but nobody else seems to care? Because sometimes when these kids go to school, the only positivity they're going to get is from you. You know, the only time they're going to eat a meal is when they go to school. The only positive male role model in their life is going to be Mr. Taylor. Yeah, it's, you know, when I, like, I, I'm not in a classroom anymore. I mean, I'm still working for these kids and trying to connect them with career opportunities and, and just help them build a network for whatever they want to do after school, whether they want to go to college or get a job or join the Carpenters Union or like I'm, I'm trying to connect them with people who can help them get where they want to go. Um, I try very much not to be like, hey, like you should graduate high school and go to college because like that's not everybody's path, you know, and, that. <laughs> and now I, I do want these kids, if they want to go to college, then I want to help them do that. If they want to get a job, I want to help them do that. Like I want to help them do whatever, whatever success means for them. It's not for me to decide what their success is. Right. Um, the first year I was there, I was in a classroom and I was doing things differently. Like I had a group of kids all day. So like think elementary school, they were in my classroom the whole day. They didn't change for English, math, science and all that. Um, and we got pretty tight. And like, I know that those kids were involved in gangs and I know that they were, you know, they were doing some stuff they shouldn't have been. Um, but I also knew that they had experienced a lot of stuff that as high school kids, they shouldn't have had to deal with. Um, and, and I mean, I, I got connected to them and, and I graduated all of them. So I was really proud of that. Um, but then one of them texted me one night and was like, it was like 3 a.m. And he texted me and he was like, I got shot. And I was like, what do you mean you got shot? And he sent me a picture and he had been shot. Like, I mean, like, like right here, you know, and I'm like, dude, like inches. And, and that would yeah. be for you. And he was like, I know. And, you know, and like, I mean, I, I cried, like, I, I'm not going to lie. I, I was like, how did I get all of my soldiers through combat every time? And I can't get these high school kids through high school, you know? And I was just having a conversation on Friday with a, another educator from Boston. And I was like, look, I, I know, you know, and of course I, I know more soldiers who were killed or wounded in combat 
but usually it was bombs. But when it comes to gunshots, I'm like, I know more high school students who have been shot than I know soldiers who have been shot. Mm. And I, and I don't understand that, you know, like, and, and I'm very, like, I tried to be honest in my book about my experiences because I wanted other soldiers to be like, ah, okay. Like I'm not the only one who thinks this, or, you know, I, I wanted people to, if they didn't, have that experience i wanted them to be able to understand it and if they did have that experience i wanted them to know that like they're not the only one um but i'm also i'm very honest with my students too you know i'm like look at the beginning of the year i'm like if you do something stupid i'm gonna tell you but if you see me do something stupid let me know and we're good right like i'm not i'm not the boss here we're working together um but i just like i i talked to these kids and i told one kid one day i was like look man like I was a soldier and, and most of them, I mean, I, I'm overweight now. Most of them don't know that. <laughs> they, <laughs> I've been a teacher forever. Um, but I'm like, look, I was a soldier. Like I, I've been in combat. I'm like, and I have watched war movies and they always make me mad. Right. Cause like they get something wrong, whether the uniforms jacked up or you've got the, the EOD guys leaving camp by themselves. I mean, it's like hurt locker, right, like, great movie, <laughs> but like totally wrong. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Way off base. <laughs> So I told this guy, I'm like, look, I am a old fat white guy from a small town in Illinois. Like the only thing I know about the life you live is from watching the Friday movies and boys in the hood. I was like, I'm going to guess they got some shit wrong. And he was like, yeah, they did. So, and he just started like dumping like his experiences and, and all this, you know, and I'm just like, I'm like, okay, so let me get this straight on the weekend. You grab your guys, your boys, you grab some guns, you get a vehicle, and you go riding around looking for an opportunity to mess some stuff up, right? And he was like, how do you know what we do? And I'm like, I used to do the same thing, but I got paid for it. (laughs) I used to grab our guys, grab our guns, get in a vehicle, and go looking for trouble, right? And I was like, but here's the thing. Like, I got to come home from that. I was like, and that's what you go home to. Isn't that messed up? And he was like, it really is messed up. And I'm like, so what are you going to do about it? Like, wh- why are you continuing to live that way? You know, but like, they're just so sucked into it. Like, it, it is so hard to, I mean, I, I had a conversation with a kid here. I mean, just a few weeks ago about whether, you know, he was wanting to try to decide if he should leave our school when he had the opportunity or if he should stay and he wanted to go to Kentucky State. And I'm like, that's great, man. Good for you. Well, then he got shot in the head like a week ago. Oh, geez. You know? And it's like... <clears throat> You feel terrible about that, but at the same time, like I also know that he was out there doing that stuff too, you know. So like, uh, there are probably some victims on his conscience, but Man. I just I don't know. Like I don't know what to do for these kids other than like keep loving them and and trying to help them. Well, let me tell you, man. I'm glad that you're in the spot to do what you do, especially with your life experiences. Yeah, you might not be from the hood, but I tell everybody. You know, when you go to war, you have obstacles and struggles and struggle is struggle, no matter what color you put on it or where you put the struggle. So you have things that you can teach them. I just hope that they're open and willing to learn from what you have to offer. So I'm glad that you're doing what you're doing, man. We need people to you know do that stuff and guide kids, yo, because honestly, even as a police officer, I try to. But it gets exhausting. You know, I've done it for 13 years I'm to the point where. I don't want to say I don't care. I care, but I just don't have the emotional capacity to care anymore. Because yep. how many young kids have I seen shot dead and killed? And and after a while, you know how it is in combat. Like when you're getting yep. shot at all the time, it's just like, oh, 
just okay. Yep, just another day, man. And it yeah. shouldn't be that. We should not be that desensitized to our young kids in America getting slaughtered in the streets. But no, it's just another day. And that's yep. so sad, man. But brother, yeah. man, thank you so much for coming on, man. So tell people how we can support you in the book and where they can get the book. Um, well, it's available on Amazon, of course. Um, it is also, you can find it at Barnes and Noble or pretty much anywhere online um, for you know any kind of bookseller online. Um, there's a few libraries that have it, but yeah, Amazon's probably your best bet. Um, I really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Is there any way that they can get a signed copy from you? Um, yeah, actually, if um, I've got a box here at the house. So if anybody wants a signed copy, if they can reach out to you and you can get them in touch with me, that's totally fine. Or um, you can email me or find me on Facebook. Um, yep. My email is ssg.jlt at gmail.com. All right. Do you have a website as well for the book, correct? Um, yeah, but it's it's not really very good. <laughs> oh, trust me. Hey, trust me, bro. My website um, is garbage. Go, go ahead and throw it out there anyway, man. Trust me. Let me pull it up here because I don't even remember what the Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> hey, trust me. Yeah, it's yeah, man. Like the guy that did mine, the same guy that did the proofreading of my book, did not do a great job. So whoever did your book proofreading and all that, bro, they did a wonderful job. They well, put it together well for it. It was Robbie Grayson with Trademarker Books did it, and then uh, when he got done, my wife gave it the last <laughs> once over. <laughs> Uh, I could definitely use that. So I'm getting ready to do a second edition on mine and I'm going through a couple of rounds of proofreading and editing to make the stuff that was wrong. Right. So yeah, definitely, man. So yeah, it's a, it's an awesome book so far. I tell you that much, man, I'm almost done. And man, it was like nostalgia being transported back in time, reading the stories and just, you know, the four drum stuff. It's just like, wow. Well, I really appreciate that. I'm almost done with your book as well. Um, I'm up to where you're doing Border Patrol. So, I actually I think I pulled my website down because I can't even find it now. Um, if you look on Facebook for No Shit Here I Am, you should be able to find the book's Facebook page, um, and you can reach me that way. And do that, and I also drop a link in the description episode description for you all. So, man, do me a favor, y'all. Please go out and support this man. This is a wonderful book, a great book. So definitely get yourself a copy. All right, man, Jared, I appreciate you coming on, brother. Is there anything else you'd like to tell the people before we head off, man? Or any advice uh, for anybody uh, wanting to write a book? Uh, yeah, I mean, you're going to get frustrated and you're going to need to take breaks sometimes, but don't give up because you can make it happen. Easy enough, man. And as I tell everybody, the ending and the opening will be the hardest part. <laughs> <laughs> yeah trying to yeah, put, that ending man that was that was that was it for me bro, i struggled on that ending on mine for about six months <laughs> i feel you but you know it's, it's it's nice when you get it done brother so man hey welcome to the published author, author club man dude <laughs> and thank you so much for coming on the iron pits podcast brother yeah, man you are you. a treasure and man keep doing what you're doing and keep driving forward man let's get you some more books sold all right i appreciate it all right, ladies and gentlemen, this has been the I Am Pits podcast. Thank you all for tuning in. Like I said, I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to have to tell you all again. You better get a book. Don't let me find out you ain't buy this man's book. I'm going to come find each and every one of y'all, all right? Y'all take care. I'll see y'all in the next one.